clean tech industry has done great things to date, but there's a lot of companies that kind of shove it down your throat and it doesn't expand the blue ocean. Meaning that the people that don't care about sustainability will never care about sustainability if it's not a solution that's better for everybody. And all that does is oversaturate markets instead of expanding new ones. So we, we always looked at it as, you know, how can we bring things to market where it's not, oh, it's clean tech, it's just better technology. This is Dare to Disrupt, a podcast about Penn State alumni who are innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders, and the stories behind their success. I'm your host, Ryan Newman, and on the show today is Xander Isaacson. Xander is the CEO and co-founder of Zeal, a technology-first electric vehicle charging company operating at the intersection of real estate, mobility, clean energy, and the Internet of Things. Prior to starting Zeal in 2019, Xander worked in sales and trading as a summer analyst at City Global Markets and then full-time in investment banking. Xander was the founder and president of Happy Valley VC, the first student-run venture capital fund at Penn State. He graduated from Penn State's Smeal College of Business. Xander, thanks so much for joining us. This is actually a first for Dare to Disrupt, as in you are the first EV cleantech company entrepreneur we're having the chance to connect with and looking forward to really getting to know you and getting to know all about that. Thank you so much for making time. Of course, Ryan. I'm excited to be here and talk more about how this got started and, and everything that Penn State has given to us to get here. Awesome. Well, I always like to start at the beginning. And so would you mind sharing with our listeners where you grew up and um, what your early formative years were like prior to deciding to come to Penn State? Yeah, I actually never been asked that before. Um, so I grew up in South Florida. The main thing that was kind of the contributor towards entrepreneurship was I started wrestling in high school. And it, it sort of built that indomitable spirit of, you know, me versus me and, and defeating all odds and really just building that confidence in my own ability. Fast forward to going to Penn State. Um, I knew about the different programs there within finance and just the possibility that I can go to Penn State and get a job on Wall Street was pretty, pretty like that was never a possibility in my head. So for me, when I went to Penn State and I found out about the Nittany Lion Fund, which is the student-run hedge fund that has 100% job placement on Wall Street, I was like, this is what I have to do. This is what I want to do and I'm going to push myself to exhaustion until I get there. Um, so I went for the new line fund, unfortunately didn't get in my first time as a freshman, but I went for it again with that indomitable spirit and sophomore year I got in and I, it was an amazing experience that kind of set everything else up after. Well, we'll talk plenty about the Nittany Lion Fund, but uh, you mentioned Indomitable Spirit. And I think we need to go back to you being a wrestler. So uh, like any, any good sports enthusiast knows, you always want to ask a wrestler two questions, what their natural weight is and what weight class they force themselves to uh, work down to weight into, because that's one of those sure tell signs of just how hard somebody had to work to actually get into the sport. Wow. So... You're, you're going to laugh at this one. So when I started high school, I didn't hit my growth spurt to very late. So freshman year, I came in as a 103 wrestler. I lost every single one of my matches. And then the pivotal point for me was the quote by Confucius, which is the person that says they can and the person that says they can't are both usually right. So I came back my sophomore year. I, I gained about, I was like 120 pounds then. And I uh, went out there. I was beating all the, all the newer kids. 
And through that, I finally was ready for my first tournament and the 185 pounder landed on my ankle, shattered my ankle, and I was out for the season. The Domino Spirit coming back my junior year, this is when I really hit my growth spurt. Um, I started working out, lifting, and I got up to about 160 pounds by junior, senior year. And I cut down to 145 every single week for the tournaments. So about 15 pounds every other week. Amazing. Well, I heard um, a motivational speaker recently say that if you think of three different uh, periods in a wrestling match, the first period is won by that wrestler with most skill, the second period by that with most endurance, and the third period by that with most heart. Would you uh, agree with that philosophy? I couldn't agree more with that. Very cool. Well, I've also not heard many wrestlers quote Confucius uh, in the <laughs> opening lines of talking about wrestling. So talk to us a little bit of, still about in that high school phase about sort of how you um, came to sort of think about things in a certainly an intellectual way, um, but also obviously, you know, the, the physical demands of being just being a high school athlete. What, what was that like in terms of the makeup of your personality or how you spent your time? Yeah, so I think the so the wrestling part was the first time in my life that I pushed myself beyond exhaustion, like passing out, coming back, and and just keep going until you win. And that kind of flipped the the belief that you know the human mind can do anything. So coming into kind of before my my summer at Penn State, uh, I read the book The Alchemist by Paul Coelho, and it's a it's a very light philosophy read, which a lot of people have read, and um, it's about you know basically like going across your own destiny and just continuing the path. And it's the journey, not the destination. So that kind of was the first book that got me into philosophy. And then from there, I started reading like individualism, like the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand and, and some books like that, which is all about just the human spirit and basically the, the real meaning of integrity, which is sticking to an idea that you believe in, no matter how bad the adversity is. And kind of that's been my... Uh, my North Star with, you know, going through any adversity or a tough challenge throughout college and the journey has been philosophy. Amazing. So you, you're you now finding yourself at Penn State. You're a freshman. You've already kind of honed in on the whole Nittany Lion Fund and that piece. But just take us through it. So you arrive at Penn State. You're mm -hmm. a freshman. You've got this a little bit of a philosophy background. You've got the, the scrappiness of a wrestler. Um, what, do, what are some of your first impressions of being on Penn State and, and how did you sort of work to initially get involved? So being, having no friends at Penn State when I first got there, it's sort of like being a first-time founder. It's like you, you, you have to be resourceful. You have to get out there. You have to go to the, you know, the, the corny of like, things that go on on campus. So I kind of just signed up for everything. And when I found out about the Wall Street Boot Camp run by Robin Stevens and, and the New Line Fund run by Dr. Warridge, I'm like, I've never had the possibility of working my you know, ass off towards something like that. So just the fact that it was like on a gold platter, like all you have to do is work hard. I just took that. I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. So that was like my freshman year. And when I didn't get into the fund, it, it was like, I didn't, it was no big deal. It was like, I'm just going to go 10 times harder, study all summer. So my initial impression was the, the opportunity is endless at Penn State. Um, you, you hear about the alumni network and the resources and the clubs and you, you, it, it's what you make of it, but it couldn't be more true. And, and that's how I kind of went into it. And my entire career so far, I, I, I attribute to Penn State. 
That's amazing. Well, certainly Robin Stevens and Dr. Wilridge deserve a lot of credit for the tremendous uh, way in which that program has been developed and cultivated and credit to somebody like yourself for really taking all that opportunity. Um, But you didn't just stop there. You didn't just stop with uh, being in the Nittany Lion Fund. You actually, as I understand it, founded your own group at, at Penn State. So can you talk a little bit about that and what led to the inspiration to do that? So truthfully, when I went to Penn State, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, when I found out about the Nittany Lion Fund, it was more of the challenge and the excitement about the markets. And it's exciting, right? So I went through the sales and trading internship. It was great. It was an awesome experience. I got to work with amazing mentors, another Penn State alumni like, like Ryan Fleming. And, and I came back and um, I got another offer for a boutique investment bank. So I accepted that because I wanted to get the investment banking background. And I came back to Penn State my senior year. And I'm like, what do I actually want to do with my life? Um, now that I have the full-time offer. And I was thinking about investment banking. And I was like, this would be good experience regardless. I'm going to go forward with at least my first year in the workforce. But what do I really want to do? So I, I looked into venture capital. I've never heard of it before. And I was like, this, this is it. This is like how I contribute my finance background with my entrepreneurial background. And that's what I want to do. So I started looking to how do you break into venture capital? And I started looking at some students that started a student-run venture capital fund at UVA, and they ended up in DC. So I looked around at Penn State. There was nothing going on there. I went to talk to Ridge, and I'm like, would you be open to helping me start the student-run venture capital fund? And he basically told me what the students did to start the new line fund. And my entire senior year was like my passion project of just starting this awesome group called Happy Valley VC, and really just building this ecosystem of really exciting students that Maybe they don't have a starter, maybe it's just an idea, or maybe they just want to be around like-minded individuals. So the paperwork, that was the easy part. The hard part was attracting amazing students that I'm not already friends with or in my network. So finance, business, that was easy. That was my network. I had to go to the engineering school. I was knocking on classrooms, giving out flyers. I went to a blockchain event, a hackathon. I went to a TED Talk. That's where I met my co-founder. He was the keynote speaker. Um, When I initially asked him to join my club, he was not interested at all. I I had to get a few more people. Um, our product designer, Scott Ludman, who's at another startup in San Francisco, he was our head of design for the club. Our head of marketing that worked at Snapchat, Jake Scheinman, he also helped us out in the early days of, of Zeal. So I had no idea that they were going to help later on. It was just the idea. I love this stuff. So I built that club, that ecosystem. And the goal was to give students an opportunity to get into VC, but also get real experience working with startups. But the end result was that it gave me so much more than I think that the club made itself. Amazing. Well, you, so you come onto campus, you take the, the bull by the horns, no pun intended, on the Nittany Lion Fund, sort of handle that rejection resoundingly well by bouncing back, go and do a, a Wall Street internship only to return and say, maybe there's something more, and then found your own club. I mean, if that's not entrepreneurial, I don't know what is. Having said that, upon your graduation, I believe your first step wasn't actually entrepreneurial. It was more in the finance route. Can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. So finance, my whole background at Penn State, while it wasn't directly, I know how to start a company now or build a product or launch in the app store. It was the work ethic, the professionalism, like nothing went in vain with the experience. So going into investment banking, it was how can I learn as much as I can? How can I get real world experience? working with different companies and within the mergers and acquisitions division. So working with tech companies and, and evaluating the space and being diligent. I saw it as I can still talk to entrepreneurs on the weekends and help them and talk to them and network with them. 
But in the meantime, I'm going to stay focused and, you know, have a have a job that's going to really build my professional skills and and, you know, be the the bridge for later on. So went into uh, Torreya Partners, which is a boutique investment bank in Manhattan, um, started my career there. And um, as I'm working there, I'm, I'm exposed to different types of deals. And one of the deals ended up being uh, something within the electric vehicle space. And I just started reading about it. And, and I was like naturally excited about it. And I was looking about these cars, how they're computers on wheels and hovering over blue glowing lights in the road and getting a 50 miles per hour boost. And just the whole idea that it's not a car, it's, it's the next iPhone. It's a gadget, it's autonomous, it's connected. That's what I love. So I called my friend, Nikhil, from Nikhil Broadwash from Penn State, the head of engineering of Happy Valley VC when I was a senior. And he was working at Schneider Electric in California, leading their electric mobility division. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, I see there's 500 new cars coming out. They don't look like the old electric vehicles. They're sleek, they're quick, they're faster. They can tow more with the F-150. And he's explained to me that all these cars are coming to market, but there's just not enough EV charging infrastructure. So I'll pause there, but that was when uh, both of us kind of started talking about it. And I realized that while the IP route would have been great, and I love the experience I got, um, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and build something from the ground up. Amazing. And I'm glad you paused there because I understand that somewhere along the way, you found yourself in Southeast Asia doing something very interesting. Can you tell us more about that and where that fit in into this sequence of events? That's funny. I, I never piece the things together, but it, it, it kind of does connect. Um, after college, before I was going into investment banking, again, I, I like mindfulness and, and getting to know myself better. So it's, you know, you don't just go on autopilot, um, which is important to put your head down, but it's important to do it consciously. So I took a trip with my friends to Thailand right after senior graduation. Um, went out there. We, we, we traveled a little bit around Southeast Asia. And then they wanted to go to Europe after, but I had the opportunity to do that when I was studying abroad and I wanted to do something new. So I went on TripAdvisor and I heard about these things called monk chats, where you can basically teach monks English and they'll teach you more about their culture. I went deep into the threads. It was like 37 replies deep. And one of it said, if you want an authentic experience, there's this one English speaking monk in Northern Thailand. You email him right here. I emailed him based off a 37 thread. And I ended up living with monks for a week in uh, northern Thailand above Chiang Mai. Amazing. And what were some of your takeaways of that really interesting experience? I think everything in life can be manageable. Um, the whole point about meditation is not a ignorance, like ignore everything going on in life. It's that, you know, as things approach you, it can just come straight through you and you can still grind and put your head down and maybe not always like what you're doing. But that doesn't mean you can't produce great work. And so from that experience, it was all about, you know, I, I was explained I was going into this investment banking route and, and the monk was explaining how there's always going to be discomfort and um, it's learning how to objectify the discomfort. And uh, my, the biggest experience I remember was sitting down. We did eight hours of meditation a day. My first day was brutal. I was, I was sitting there. I came and sit crisscrossed and I'm sitting there and my leg fell asleep. And the monk is saying like he's, the practice is like, distraction, 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 like you're saying it in your head, discomfort, discomfort, discomfort. But the reality is it actually works. You start objectifying how you feel and, and you, could, you could apply that to any area of life. Amazing. And as you think about your business, how, what are some of the major themes, not just going, preparing for your investment banking boutique experience, mm -hmm. but then subsequently starting your business? What were some of the takeaways from this experience that have sort of led all the way through to what you're doing now? 
I, th I think the the optimism is is a big part. The resiliency it, it doesn't just come with you know being tough. It's it's the perspective you have on life and and seeing things as like this is a unique opportunity to make myself distinct. Like who else has had this adversity? So you know in the in the early years we we struggled to raise money. We, you know we were two students, an engineer, and an ex investment banker. It sounds like a perfect fit, but it's also it's there's plenty out there. So we really had to build a business from the ground up before we attracted any capital. And every single time we would just get turned down, it'd be like, well, how many, like it almost became comical. It was like, of course this happened to us, but we're going to learn how to get through this. And that's going to be adversity that's going to make us distinct down the line. Uh, Xander, you mentioned that you were, you know, working at the boutique investment bank and one of the projects you worked on was EV related and, and that sort of led you down this path. Um, is it your sense that there, if, if it wasn't that idea, it could have been another idea that would have caught your fancy. In other words, did you find yourself sitting in that banking role, viewing it all along as a launch pad to become an entrepreneur? So was it was it the, the, the internal entrepreneurial spirit looking for an idea? Or was it the idea that captured your entrepreneurial spirit? So I think it was, it was multiple things. My background, I've always been into entrepreneurship. Like in high school, I I would buy watches from Amazon and resell them to people that wanted them. I, I've always liked that. I did like a summer program when I was a high school student at a at Syracuse entrepreneurship class. So I always had that just excitement about building things. But but the journey was really just like an explosion of passion. It was like junior year, like I loved finance. I loved investment banking, the markets. Like I loved everything going on there. But then senior year when I started the, the VC club, I'm like, most of my friends, they're, they're relaxing. They're not doing anything their senior year. And they're like, why are you doing this? Are you trying to get a job? And it's like, no, for me, it's like, I just want to build a foundation. I want to like build something that really lasts. So then I just started getting more excited about startups. And I was thrilled to start an IB. But then when I started working on the weekends, I would go to these like startup get togethers and these events on the weekends. And it's like, why am I doing this on the weekends? And it's because I love it. Like, it doesn't feel like work. So it was like a, just increasing alignment with what I want to do with my life. And I was, it wasn't necessarily looking to you know, leave IB and start something like this. It was the fact that the person that I founded was someone I would blindly follow, Nikhil. He's a Indian immigrant, moved here when he was 18 years old from India with no friends or family, with one life mission to stop climate change without bothering people. And that was his whole TED talk. And when I spoke to him and, he, and, he, and he's telling me about some of the ideas he wants and how he wants to leave his job as well, it was just like a right time, right place, right person, founder fit. And I quit my job. And, and what we do right now is nothing to what we did when we first started. It was a completely different product, business model, and idea. So it, it was really the, the person, the time, and, and the passion that really drove me to jump. So if you could unpack this comment, uh, heal climate change without bothering people, that's is a lot of um, uh, facetiousness just built into that, inferred by that statement. Can you sort of unpack that for us? Yeah. So I think Clean tech industry has done great things to date, but there's a lot of companies that kind of shove it down your throat and it doesn't expand the blue ocean, meaning that the people that don't care about sustainability will never care about sustainability if it's not a solution that's better for everybody. And all that does is oversaturate markets instead of expanding new ones. So the example I always give is the, the paper straw, right? It's like the first wave of people that are, really don't like straws has the paper straw, but it, we know that it, it disintegrates quicker, it's not a good experience, it gets all wet, it's not great. There's a better solution now. It's that there's ones that are made out of bamboo and, and corn, and it might be a little more expensive, but it's a better solution that has the same experience. So that's how I kind of interpreted it. It was like, how can we 
solve things without making people realize they're, they're having a different uh, fundamentals that make up the solution. So we, we always looked at it as, you know, how can we bring things to market where it's not, oh, it's clean tech, it's just better technology. Fascinating. And so you find yourself running this business uh, and talk to us about some of the earliest challenges. You mentioned it was very hard at first before you raised any money. You've obviously been very successful raising money. You just completed a Series B transaction where you raised over $50 million. It's on the back of your Series A where there was $11 million raised. But before we get ahead of ourselves and get to that, mm-hmm. talk to us about some of those early challenges when you were really starting out the business uh, with your co-founder, Nikhil. So in the early days, the, the initial idea was a uh, basic form reservation app for charging stations. There's not enough out there. So here's this Uber model. You reserve the charger and you charge when it's less expensive and it's better for the utility company. It's cleaner. It's better. That was it. Brought that to market. And we had some part-time salespeople seeing if we can sell it for us. First learning mistake is that you need to sell it yourself before you can hire people. Um, So I started selling it to different groups like workplaces and apartments. And everybody thought it was awesome. We were getting a bunch of pats on the back, but nobody's willing to pay for it because it was a feature, not a product. So when we started doing more customer discoveries and talking to different customers, we found out that they wanted, apartment buildings wanted a way to monetize electricity, make money off them like a vending machine. So through that, we had to create an IoT platform where there would be a driver app that can turn the charger on remotely, and then they would pay for their electricity that they consume, just like an Uber ride where you, it's based on how many meters or miles you go. And then the money that they would pay, like let's call it $10 a session, would float to the building manager's dashboard and they can collect the revenue share with us and also control who gets to use the chargers. So for example, Ryan, if you moved out of the apartment building, they can go on their laptop and revoke access. So now the phone can no longer turn the charger on. So we built this, took about a year. We we brought it to market, Um, still no investors at the time. We launched about 12 different markets, 12 different buildings. Apartments, workplaces, surface lots above ground, underground, you name it. We were so excited. And that's when all hell broke loose. Um, the app wouldn't connect to the charger. The charger wouldn't connect to the network. The, the app would just would get buggy because it didn't have connectivity. And everything pointing back to a single point of failure model, which is how IoT works today, which is a phone connects to the cloud in another state. And then the cloud processes information and sends it back to the charger. So... When we got hundreds of complaints from drivers, it wasn't, we didn't have an IT team that we could just ditch these problems onto because we didn't have VC funding. So it was me and Nikhil, the customer success line. And we were getting hundreds of emails. I hope your company goes bankrupt. I hope your CEO dies. I couldn't drive my kids to school. I was late for my appointment. Like it's not a dating app. Like it's, you're controlling people's lives. And we felt that. So we spoke to all of our competitors, right? We were asking like, what did they do? And all they did was like, they tried doing ethernet, which is like hardwiring the building, but that doesn't solve anything because it still needs to go across the country to a server. We tried hotspot routers, which is like just amplifying the phone's connectivity, still needs to go across the country. And then we tried every single solution that they thought of. And again, it was us facing the the pain. And we realized that this is just a broken status quo. So in 2019, uh, we made a very conscious decision. A light bulb went off and we decided that we're gonna build a new communication architecture, new internet that connects smart devices for authentication and payments and over there updates without any central server dependence. It puts the intelligence back in the smartphone with uh, digital tokens, which is a fancy way of saying it just distributed computers where you don't need any external reliance. 
So we didn't know this was going to be a big thing. We just building it to solve our own problems. And we launched that a, a year ago after two and a half years of development. And we stopped selling the old products because we didn't want to make any more drivers stranded. Well, what's so fascinating about what you're describing is the applicability to basically, in theory, any industry, right? So, in, in, so talk to me about, uh, I mean, am I talking to the co-founder of an EV connectivity company or am I talking to the co-founder of a new digital platform for everything under the sun related to payments and um, uh, identification and, and tr transmittal of information? You're talking to the co-founder with a mission to accelerate the future of smart cities. And the biggest pillar within smart cities is electric vehicles first. It's going to have the biggest impact on the climate, cities, and just the overall experience. So for us, it was when we, when we filed the patent, it was about making it apply to all industries, right? This is a protocol that, that is going to make devices self-reliance. You don't have any lag, no latency, no IT infrastructure. But the thing is, when we built it, we were very conscious of how we're building it. And all other industries like smart locks or packaging lockers, like Amazon lockers, or even uh, bird scooters, right? To turn it on, it goes through the central network to the scooter. All of these things have the same architecture. So we built in a way where the platform, the protocol itself could eventually be used for other industries. But right now we're heads down focused on making this work for the EV industry first. The Invent Penn State Summer Founders Program provides the funding startups need to allow them to work full-time on their ventures over the summer. As part of the program, founders receive the mentorship and resources early stage startups need to turn their business ideas into reality. Are you interested in supporting this program through a tax-deductible donation? We'd love to have you involved. Please contact Heather Winfield at hbw11 at psu.edu to learn more. So uh, once you redesigned this, this aspect of connectivity and IoT, I should mention Internet of Things, you've referenced it, but just to kind of put those two, the, the acronym with the, the explanation – uh, you essentially now go back to market effectively, consciously, sort of take that pause and sort of pivot. And you see that all of a sudden now you have this aha moment that it's working well. You mentioned a magic word there, which is patent. So you were wise enough, you and Nikhil, to actually protect your technology, which gives you that benefit of additional first mover and attraction of capital, et cetera. And so now all of a sudden you have this infrastructure, you're using it. What was the uh, decision to raise capital and what was the, the response from your consumers? And are you still getting those uh, horrible messages on your message board or through your customer service communication system? Uh, fortunately, no, um, we, we don't get anything like that, but we, we're still listening to make sure that we're always innovating. On our side, so I think the big misconception a lot of entrepreneurs have is that you have an amazing idea and products and it sells right away or some amazing product sells right away. This product we had effectively communicated to individuals that may or may not understand technology and understand why it would not be good for drivers when they never drove electric before, so they, they can't empathize with it. So the sales and marketing force of, of how we marketed the technology and how we brought it to real estate groups that own all of the buildings in the United States, that was the inflection point for us. It was who controls all the buildings, who controls the future? And it's the ones that have all the parking spaces. So it's the real estate groups that we need to work with to really accelerate things. So we focused on going after the top 50 real estate groups that own 80% of the buildings in the U.S. And we partnered with groups like Lincoln Property Company and, and 
Toll Brothers and, and big groups that, that manage all these different assets across the country. And we started working with them and explaining to them the technology and how they could be a first mover and how they could be the leader that, that accelerates the whole flywheel for EV adoption. And it was an amazing kind of flywheel effect where these groups, they wanted to be champions. They wanted to lead the future and lead first. And so we started partnering with these groups. And now it's a realization that if we're really going to change the world, we're going to accelerate the future. We need to bring in as many real estate champions as possible that want to accelerate EV charger deployment. And that was a decision to go after the Series A last year where um, we wanted capital to bring in the right real estate groups, expand our partner program and put chargers in all places that are needed, not just the places that are more mature, right? If you don't put chargers in a region that doesn't have EV drivers, you'll never have EV drivers. It's a chicken and the egg. And so just to be clear, so you raised you raised a Series A. Are you actually uh, using some of that Series A to install chargers on location? So we're a technology first company. Everything is software, but we're hardware agnostic. So think of it like the Android for any type of charging station company. So we don't manufacture it ourselves, but we have custom solutions with big manufacturers that have our own protocol inside of it. It's a custom brand. And then we we use that charging station. We, we give the full turnkey solution to real estate groups. So we oversee the installation, install the chargers, software management, and the on the 24-7 support and five-year warranty. That said, from like a technology perspective, it's the software that's the, the real value. I, I always like to say it's like um, like when the Peloton first came out, you know, you're not selling an optimization software for the Peloton. You need to sell the full unit before they can value it until the market matures. Um, and so as you sit here, uh, when, you went, when you went to market and you were looking to raise capital from, from investors, how, what was the level of receptivity and how did your message evolve over time as you sort of talked to more investors and realized what you needed to hone to be able to be successful in raising capital? So that, this is just my experience and this doesn't mean this is the right opinion, but um, every single time we went to raise capital, to raise capital, we failed miserably. It was only when we started focusing on the business and just building and then naturally investors started reaching out to us. And they heard about our growth and, and our customers being happy who, who might have been investors in the venture capital fund, some of these real estate groups. So it was really just focusing on the business and, and making sure we, we provide the best customer experience to drivers and, and real estate owners. And through that, it, it just became kind of everything else followed after that. So when we started focusing on the business, that's when it got a lot easier. And then groups were excited to, to work with us. And, and that's when we kind of kicked off the process for the Series A. And Xander, what led you to go from a Series A to a Series B? Uh, as I mentioned, it's just been announced that you raised a Series B at $50 million. What was the um, thought process for going to that Series B? And what were the lessons learned from the Series A to the Series B that carried over? Yes. Yeah, so, so Series A, it's a, it's a different beast, right? It's, you, you see uh, like the show Silicon Valley and, and Zero to One and books like that. And you think, you know, it's a really good idea. You can raise off certain, certain things. Series A, it's like a real financing, right? It's the, it's the valuation. You have a 409A valuation. It's, it, it's legit. So the point is it's much harder and the diligence is much deeper. So that experience made us a lot more professional and realized what we don't have and what we need to have. And we were really fortunate to have amazing DC funds that helped us kind of grow to that next level. And then after the Series A, again, we just focused back on the business. The plan was not to raise around anytime soon. But we just started growing like crazy and, and the team, like we were building new products. We were, we, we screw sales over 85X since our Series A. We went from 12 partners to nearly 100 real estate partners. 
We went from a, a you know a few regions across the U.S. to 40 plus markets, and it became a realization that again, how do we hone in on our mission of accelerating and enabling EV adoption? And we do that by by expanding our core resources. So timing was right. We, we we've been speaking to a VC fund for the partner there was our advisor of the for the last three years, and um, we had a really good relationship. He's been watching our growth for the for, for the all four years. Never thought he would be an investor. Just mentor and then a friend and then he ended up deciding that that this was the right place right time and we felt like it was just opportunistic so we decided to close the 40 million equity and 10 million credit line to uh, accelerate our goals and expand the team going into the new year amazing and um when you look out to the future what is it that you hope that um zeal will be able to do in the in the years quarters and years ahead so ryan i mentioned how the there's a fundamental problem with the current system of Internet of Things. And there's no way to guarantee reliability when you're depending on something else, right? It would be like saying, I, I can get to the ice cream store in under 10 minutes, but you have no idea when the Uber is coming, right? You're depending on something to work for you to get there. So for us, you know, step one is rebuilding the status quo. It's getting in the door with all these groups. So the new status quo is ready for the next wave of EV drivers who are not going to be as patient and eco-friendly. Again, they just want better technology. The next wave is how do we enable the rest of the industry? And that's where we see our protocol that, that has 100% uptime um, applied to other chargers that are already in the ground. And that's kind of what, where we, we start specializing in being that layer that, that creates a reliable experience for drivers. And then far into the future, um, again, staying focused on EV charging, we start enabling that protocol as a software development kit or SDK where other industries can apply it to achieve 100% uptime, a more secure and faster way to communicate. And again, IT infrastructure free by leveraging the fact that everybody has a smartphone in their pocket. And that layer is kind of the, the vision for, we don't know how big it can be, but we want to be the platform that dreamers and builders can build off of it and, and build whatever they want. Incredible. Well, it sounds like it's an incredible vision and you're really only just getting started. Um, Xander, I'd now like to turn things over to a current Penn State student, uh, Dylan Benson. Dylan is a third-year student studying finance and Chinese language. At Penn State, he's the director of education in the Nittany Lion Fund and an executive board member at Happy Valley Venture Capital. And so it sounds like he's very much walking in your footsteps. Dylan, I'll now hand the interview over to you. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, pleasure to be speaking with you uh, both today. And so, Xander, um, looking at our backgrounds, I mean, coming to Penn State, I immediately joined the Nittany Lion Fund, Happy Valley Capital, sort of following in your footsteps, I guess, to an extent. Um, what ultimately, what advice would you give to someone in my shoes who's looking at that Wall Street path, but also looking in terms of startups, entrepreneurship and looking at all of those different options? One, it's, it's a pleasure to speak to you, Dylan. I appreciate you making time. And I, I remember speaking to you when, when I started advising Happy Valley Venture Capital. Um, my advice to all students is that you're never going to know the person you're going to be a year, five years from now, 10 years from now. And you just have to accept that and build as much genuine, as many genuine relationships as possible with the understanding that they may not lead to anything. And when you kind of have that mindset, that's when you start meeting with people that might be an engineer or a designer or something outside that your plan of what you plan to do. Because the best place to be when you've realized what you want to do is to have optionality and have a network that you've built over the years and a genuine network that really wants to help you. 
Understood. Thanks for that advice. And overall, when you were starting out in investment banking, you mentioned how on the weekends you would get involved with startup communities, reaching out to founders. And so can you just talk a little bit more about that experience and how in tandem with working your full-time job, you were able to sort of still get that kind of exposure? So I think you brought up a really good point that um, a lot of these events and, and things that I got exposed to, it, it started at Penn State. It was the uh, I wanted to start a startup organization and I couldn't find access to the people that I needed in it. So I learned through the people I brought on some of these different resources. It was like Scott Ludman um, taught me, he's a designer, he taught me, you know, these different groups in New York City that I can go to. I, I met other entrepreneurs within the organization that, that explained to me different engineering events I can go to. And it sort of just becomes this like snowball effect that surround yourself by different perspectives, because if you're, if you're around just finance students, you're going to get access to all the events, but you're not going to find out this weird, cool niche thing that you would have never stepped into. So it's network, different types of perspectives and a diverse experience all around you. Definitely. And in terms of your vision in creating Happy Valley VC, you sort of wanted to help connect students with those opportunities in venture capital, but also there's a degree of helping advance that startup environment for Penn State. And now I know recently Penn State was ranked, I think, 34th by startup founders in the U.S. for uh, colleges and entrepreneurship studies. How would you advise now current Happy Valley VC's leadership to sort of help facilitate that advancement of that startup environment and the support for startup founders? That's a great question. I think it always comes down to hands-on experience. I, I think it's, as a founder, like the, the one thing that's most important is growing your business. It's sales and marketing and building products that actually customers want. And I think taking less of a focus on the planning and um, making pitch decks and, and things that are not going to help in the early stages and getting just your hands dirty, putting out flyers around the campus, meeting with different customers, helping sell the product. Right. I think that's the hard thing about hard things and um, getting as much real world experience where you're basically their free employees. And, and that's what you kind of need at a startup is like you don't have the capital to bring on full time people. So that's kind of how I, how I see it is it's work with startups in a way that's going to best advance them, not in a way that you think that's going to most advance them. Got it. And at what point was it where you sort of realized, I guess, getting comfortable with those uncomfortable sort of situations where you would just be able to go out there, go do sales in a random building, hand out flyers and sort of go, get out of your comfort zone in that way. So, so you, <laughs> the truth is you, you never get comfortable. <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a, it evolves, but it, it's sort of like a pain tolerance, right? It's the, the more dis discomfort you, you go for, then it's like that's 10x more uncomfortable. So the next time you have a challenge that's 10x more uncomfortable, it's not 100x more. It's, it's the fact that you already grew to that kind of discomfort. So for me, it's I was always around finance individuals. And I got really comfortable there. So for me to go to like a hackathon, I asked some of my friends. Nobody wanted to go with me. So I had to go there alone. And I'm like tapping on someone's shoulder who's like zoned in with their headphones. That was discomfort. But then from there, you know, then I'm, I'm, I'm presenting at our first board meeting. Sorry, we have a board meeting next week. Our first uh, Happy Valley VC meeting. And there's students in the audience that are not finance individuals. Like, well, I only know how to inspire and make finance individuals excited. So now I'm really nervous, like, how do I inspire someone about product when I don't know anything about products? But that discomfort and, and, and you, get, you get comfortable with discomfort. And as you do that, you have more confidence in your own ability. So it's crucial just to throw yourself in as much discomfort as possible, especially when there's less risk. And that's when you're a student.
Got it. Um, and then I guess more to that extent in terms of that discomfort when you, so you went from an internship in S&T to working full time in investment banking. Then while you're working full time, you eventually leave your, I'm sure, great job and start your own business. At what point were you ready to make that change or ready to start your own uh, venture? So, so I mentioned the expanding your network and being open minded. But one thing that I, I actually do recommend to students is that when you're in something, you're all in. And even if you think it might not be what you want to do long term, it's it's what you learn in the process by being all in in something. And if you always have one foot outside the door, you never really gain as much exposure as you can. So for me, I was all in with IP. Um, I, I the transition for SNT, I, I got the full time offer. But when I started learning about venture capital, was IB seemed like a more experience that ties better. But when I was there, I was all in. I had no plans to leave anytime soon. Again, it was just the timing, the place, the inspiration, and the founder that was ready to go. And that kind of led to the whole movement. Got it. Um, and then overall, I guess it's something that we stress in the Nittany Lion Fund that is perpetuated in investment banking. But there's always like a big learning curve. When I was first got into the Nittany Lion Fund, just as you, there's a ton of onboarding, a ton of work you have to get used to, a lot of stuff you got to learn in a short time. Um, then moving into investment banking, that was very similar. Then I guess starting Zeal, how did that sort of learning environment uh, continue? It's 100% transferable. <laughs> Um, learning how to get a company incorporated, learning how to put together a sales presentation, how to close a deal, how to set up QuickBooks, right? How to uh, work with engineers, how to work with product designers. Everything you're doing, it's just, it's, you just make it a process and every single step you obsess about until you, you get it perfect. And then you, and you have the next challenge, right? Like I always say, um, like we're at Series B company now, but, but the weight is even heavier now. Like we have to you know, move to the next level. And again, it's just it's reinventing yourself and how you go about things in the way. But at the same time, it's you've done this before kind of thing. Got it. And along with all those challenges you're coming across, how do you, I guess, look back, reflect and assess how you in, like overcame those challenges and reflect on your past success and then utilize that in terms of moving forward with your business? I think you got to have a good support network. Um, that's one thing I've, I've always been very fortunate for. Um, when, when we failed the first time of raising capital, we really needed the capital. I had a, a humble experience. I, I went back to my mentors on Wall Street, the ones that were like three years older than me in the fund. And I said, we're raising $100,000. Can you help us out? And my mentor that got me my internship at City was, our, was the first check, Louis Rosenberg. And uh, he actually is our head of finance now, believe it or not. But uh, he was the first check and helped us raise money. And, and you kind of, that's like the first time you realize things don't go as planned. But if you stay focused on the North Star, you just keep your head up and you have resiliency as you move to new challenges. Um, so I'd say resiliency and, and just a positive attitude as you approach new things. Awesome. Well, thank you. And so I'm sure I have plenty of more questions to ask you, but in terms of just one last question here, um, any last pieces of advice for someone in my shoes at Penn State looking into Wall Street, again, looking into startups, entrepreneurship? Uh, what would you say best will help us start off our career and lead to continued success in the future? I'd say be open-minded and, and cast as wide of a network as possible. And I mean, a genuine network, like people that you want to hang out with and be friends with and, and introduce your family to, right? Like that, that's what a genuine network means. And then when you're in a role, keep your head down and work as hard as possible, especially in the early side of your career. And, and by doing so, you're going to learn much more. And, and just be more exposed to different things. 
Um, so for me, this is actually a, this is the first podcast I've, I've done since starting Zeal. And it's not because I, I don't want to help and pay forward. It was just more of a, I want to keep my head down and focus on the business and not talk so much. But at the end of the day, you know, Penn State gave me everything and I had to say yes to this one. I appreciate that uh, advice. So thank you very much, uh, Xander. Thank you for taking the time for me to interview you today. Of course. Thanks, Dylan. That was Xander Isaacson, co-founder and CEO of Zeal. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Dare to Disrupt wherever you listen to podcasts and look out for next month's episode. Thanks for listening.